I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation under God. Real niggas getting money from the fucking stars. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am Bobby Burns. And I'm Paul Sexton. And this is Wayward Weekly. All right, Paul, uh, let's dig in. Last week, we were talking about uh, robotics and the robotic future. It wasn't supposed to be the topic of our podcast, but it became the topic of our podcast. And uh, I'm okay with that because that was something we had uh, talked about uh, about 10 years ago. It's something I still think about, and it's something that I had thrown on as a planned topic. Um, I don't know if I was prepared to discuss everything in uh, complete detail um, that I, I wanted to say, and I don't know if you were, but that's why we kind of revisit the past podcast every single episode. Um, so I will start this off because uh, I just had a few things that I wrote down as I was listening to it. Um, one of the things that you said uh, that I thought about is that um, when the prices of goods come down because of robotics um, that uh, we'll be able to make more money um, or we will be able to um, kind of save some money. Things will be cheaper. There won't be a, a, as much need for money. Um, but one of the things that I started thinking is uh, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think that um, as the prices of some of these things come down and we have more money, we're probably just going to spend more money. So I was thinking about like, well, what did this look like 50 years ago? And at the time, I would imagine people are just like they are today, um, saying that, you know, we don't want to work as much in this and that and yada, yada, yada. Um, and in the future, because of uh, the industry, things should be cheaper and we'll all just have more money. But the thing is, is like we're buying more luxurious things um, and, and more stuff. I mean, I've got like a recording studio's worth of crap. Uh, my dad didn't have that when, when he was my age or a kid. And so, um, you know, maybe these, he didn't have a PC when he was a kid. What was that? Or an elect, he didn't have a a PC or a cell phone when he was a kid. You no, not at all. And Whoa, it, this is revelatory. And so, wow. but what I'm saying is we just have more things I know to what spend you're money on. I know what like, you're you know, it's, uh, he no, could have taken it. all that yeah. money and, and saved it up for analog recorders and microphones and this and that. And he didn't mm-hmm. do it. I think that, um, as the, the prices come down on some of these things, it seems more tempting for us to take that money that we're saving on one good, um, and spend it on another good. And so I, I just, I, I listened to the episode and I find myself continually wondering, Will we ever get to that point that you're talking about when, you know, you're going to say, well, the prices will eventually catch up and get cheaper over here. And I definitely agree, but I don't think that we're going to go cool. So I'm going to work less now. I think we're going to go cool. I could buy more stuff. Well, I mean, whatever would, would pacify our existence. I mean, it could be buying more stuff. It could be socializing more. I mean, you know, like I was reading a, um, uh, part of a study uh, that was based upon baboon uh, populations. And they were basically saying that they have three hours in which they fend for food and water. And then after that, they have their whole entire rest of their day to themselves. And honestly, it causes a lot of problems because they're very, very intelligent beings. And 
you know, the same could be for human beings. I mean, what did we do back in the day when we were hunter gatherers? I mean, were we really hunting all day or did we have a kill and then we had some downtime? Like what no, were we doing? No, you brought that up last, last week and I definitely agree yeah. with that. I mean, I don't think that that's what people were doing all day. I don't think they had a kill and they're like, well, we better find something else to do or we're lazy. I don't, I mean, there was no concept of that. How could they think that? Um, it's yeah, just you make when, your own time. Yeah. When things are good, you enjoy it. And when things are, are not good, then you're working hard every day. I mean, it's not that things go bad and you're working hard, but it's somewhat equivalent to backpacking, right? Um, when we yeah. go backpacking up in, in Big Sur or the forest somewhere, um, you know, you might take a, a day or two to hike back somewhere and you're working and you're doing hard work all day long. Um, and when you get there, then you got to set up camp and you got to find wood and you got to clean water and you got to, um, you know, do all the things that you need to do. And then maybe the next day or the day yeah. after you wake up and you get some wood and make some oatmeal and an hour's passed and you're like, well, I've got nothing to do all day. And it doesn't make me feel like a, a lazy piece of crap. It makes me feel that, uh, I don't know, nice and relaxed and gives me lots of time to think about life and myself and the things that matter and the things that don't and to go on a hike and enjoy myself and then to, you know, I don't know, get bored and build a rock fireplace and make it nicer or <laughs> something because there's nothing to do. It's great. It's enjoyable. Um, so at any rate, I don't know. All, all I wanted to bring up in that regards is that um, I, I don't necessarily think that just because something's cheaper that we're going to reduce the amount of time that we work every week. Um, I, uh, I think that we'll probably work the same, um, if not more, and just try and get more crap. Yeah. That Unfortunately, we're not even going to be able to use anyways because we're working too much to use it. Yeah. So. And it, it, we always, we, you know, we take on all this technology and it's supposed to benefit our lives in terms of, you know, giving us more personal freedom and time management ability. And yet we find out that, you know, we have less time. Well, so. yeah. I mean, you could work on a car from like the 60s and it'd be bare bones and super easy to fix. And if you work on a car today, I mean, there are so many things that can break and go wrong. Your hybrid battery, your backup camera, yeah. one of your sensors, um, the, the air conditioner that you didn't have back then, the power steering, the coolant inverter, the this, the that. Um, and so it's like the nicer the thing you get, it's almost like the more things there are that can go wrong and the more expensive they are to fix and the more you're working like just to keep those things nice, you know? Um, yeah. so I don't know. That was, that was just one thing I wanted to talk about. Um, we did somewhat talk about, uh, the idea of, a. I mean, we didn't necessarily go into the idea of a basic universal income, um, per se. Um, but I think the idea of working less is us reaping the fruits or the benefits of our labor, right? If, if let's say we only have to work 20 hours a week, everybody in the entire world, and we're benefiting from it, it's it, it's not a basic universal income. Everybody's got to do something. Um, but the price of uh, human service um, becomes, a, uh, I don't want to say worth more, um, but we're able to pay things more. Um, and so there, there's somewhat of a similarity there. Now, what I wanted to go into is I wanted to justify that at least a little bit, because I know people are against kind of this idea of a basic universal income or increasing the minimum wage, um, which is really what I was just talking about. Uh, but something that I want to point out that, that I find really interesting, and I want to know what your thoughts are on it, is that we 
are just one generation uh, inhabiting the planet right now. And everything that we're doing, though, is built off of the backs of our ancestors and the ancestors of the world. And so I find it a bit odd when we talk about things like possession, um, possession of technology, copywriting um, certain books, uh, or um, patenting certain pills or this or that, it, it seems funny to me that one company or that some specific person could be the beneficiary of all of the cumulative, cumulative years of the human experience coming together. In other words, the only reason there's a computer sitting in front of you right now is because some people a few thousand years ago were able to create bronze. And then, you know, a few hundred years after that, iron. And then, uh, you know, someone invented a, a printing press after that and started distributing books. And it's like, if it Gutenberg. weren't for everybody in all of history, none of this stuff would be here. Um, at times we tend to act as if one person is responsible you, for all of this. Are you doing the Obama line? Are you saying that I didn't build that? What's the Obama line? You remember that when like uh, conservatives flipped out because he said, you know, you didn't build that when he was talking about, you know, businesses flourishing and all that. And he was talking about roads and infrastructure. He's basically saying like what you're saying, that individuals before us laid the foundation for us to create businesses that thrive. Like you didn't build the interstate highways. You don't, you know, maintain city functions, governmental yes. functions. Blah, so blah, like, blah, blah, let's blah. say in a hundred years, someone is reaping all of the benefits of, um, you know, computers and the internet and this and that. Uh, yeah. and let's say the descendants of like Bill Gates or, um, Steve Jobs, although I don't think he has any kin in line to, uh, uh, he has a, a daughter. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Let's say their grandchildren somehow, um, are, in a situation where they're not receiving any of that money and, uh, you know, they're just working at McDonald's for 15 bucks an hour. Is that really fair for somebody else to completely benefit off of what their grandfather or great grandfather did and they don't get jack shit and that person gets absolutely everything because of it? And look, I'm not saying that that person should get things for free. I'm just saying these are the reasons why we should work on leveling the playing field. These are the reasons why we should work towards everybody getting more. I'm not saying that uh, we should take away from the people who have, but I'm, I'm saying we should make sure that we do have things like, um, maybe not even a basic universal income. Like why do we still have to pay for gas and water and electricity? Aren't there government utilities that take care of most of these things? Uh, quasi government, uh, utility companies. Yeah. yeah. So just f pay for that in the tax money. And now nobody has to worry about that. Okay. And you go, Oh, well then people will just let the water run this now. Okay. Maybe not water here in California, but electricity. Mm hmm. And maybe there are penalties for going over uh, certain amounts where you have to pay for it. But now we just say uh, that uh, you get a certain amount of electricity for free, a base amount, because we don't need to pay for that. I mean, I'm pretty sure I got some type of COVID credit on my electricity bill anyways. And I'm like, I, I mean, why don't they always do that? I'm just saying, look, if we're going to start somewhere, these are the places that maybe we start. 
I see. But but why start with utility companies and in those they're already government subsidized um their necessities um so Uh one of the complaints of if i give you a basic universal income right you're going to go buy drugs and beer with that and cigarettes and all the things that you don't need um if we start with utilities like water and electricity and gas well now you can't really go buy beer with that can you no that you're absolutely right you could do that with I mean, the money that you save, but look, all I'm saying is if we're going to explore this idea a little bit, and I think I think rightfully we should, and I'm not saying we should do it. I'm not saying we should give everybody a basic universal income and nobody should work, and yeah. where are we going to get it all from? I'm just saying there's an abundance of stuff here in America, okay? There is enough food for us to burn food to keep the price of certain foods high, like corn. Not that everybody yeah. would want to eat it, but just take that corn then, and instead of burning it, I don't know. Give it away for free. Make that some standard basic thing for a while. And the next year, change it if you have an abundance of something else. Um, There are just certain things where it's like we could just stop paying for this as a society and let government take care of it since they're already doing a big hand uh, in it to begin with. Now, that brings in lots of other issues of do we even want government in this type of stuff? So... I don't know, but I think there's going to have to be some type of government regulation if we're to bring down the amount of time that people work and increase the wages. All of this was because, you know, we said we need a middle a middle class uh, and that can be strengthened by manufacturing and we bring those jobs back here by robotics and then we won't have to, you know, work as much or, the, or this or that. And so when I start thinking about that, I, I just think of like, well, what is that going to be like? How do we work less? Or does that mean we have to raise the minimum wage? Because if somebody working at McDonald's now only has to work 20 hours a week, week, they're still not making any money. So we're going to have to pay them more. How do we pay yeah. them more? Well, the hope would be those, but the thing is those, that if we're talking about the future that we're talking about, they wouldn't be working at McDonald's like that. Pro- the, the, the job would be gone. So they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be working in that position to begin with. But I see, I, I see what you're saying though. But I, I, what I look at it, I look at it, it like this, like eventually because there's no human input, the cost of goods will come down significantly. So you're not going to need necessarily $1,200 a month in order to live the lifestyle that you want to. And these, you know, these uh, corporate CEOs, they're not going to be able to gouge us as individuals because we're not going to have the money to provide them. You see what I mean? So I would I would think that the economy would have to reset because there's not the human element anymore. It's just robotics. So there would be a new middle class, whatever the monetary number would be for the middle class, there would be a new rich, whatever the number would be for that, and a new poor for whatever, you know, whatever the number would be for that. Everything would kind of reset. I mean, I mean, we already do this to a certain extent. I mean, you look at the, the, um, our, our, the history of our nation, uh, we relied on slavery for a very long time, and then we rely on undocumented workers and we still rely on undocumented workers to this day to keep prices artificially low I completely agree with that and I think that is a, a largely overlooked issue with our society right now is that we are yes. not benefiting from the fruits of uh, free labor as much as we have in the past and I'm not saying that we should uh, I'm just saying I think we're seeing some repercussions of growing equality and not having free labor I mean 
Look, go back in history and every sort of uh, great civilization has had some type of free labor or slavery with its citizens or other people's citizens. I'm not saying we should do that. I'm just saying it almost takes the exploitation of other people and their work to be able to create this illusion of something that is great from the outside. Yeah, no, I, I see uh, where you're going and everything. And, and we, at some point, we would just be exploiting the robotics. Yes. Um, it, it seems like, and that is kind of, a, I guess, a problem with, with capitalism. And uh, you look at unregulated uh, capitalism, and people seem to, to work in absolutes on that uh, in terms of uh, you need to be for capitalism in its absolute, or you're completely against capitalism. And capitalism, if you let it go naturally, it naturally regulate it, regulates itself. Here's right? a, yeah, but when it, is... Well, be, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to oh, say... Oh, no, I was just going <laughs> to... Damn it. <laughs> I was going to say, when is capitalism ever left alone in, in truly natural, right? So you it say... It never is. No, it's not. And so you say... And people say this, look, people say, well, like in a true capitalist, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, there's no such thing. So why are you trying to defend that? Um, it's I like remember, anarchy. Yeah, exactly. It's the same exact thing I, with anarchy. We, we started in, in anarchy. We began as humans, human beings in anarchy and every single time it results in society. Every time someone starts a lawless commune, it results in society. Yeah. It's because it's because people are different. We all have different wants and needs and there's always someone that's going to be trying to abuse the system and then we have to regulate that system to stop them from doing that. It's the same exact thing with uh, capitalism. It will work to exploit uh, individuals. And if it's left unregulated, it will do just that. It's, I'm not saying just overregulation, you know, and just regulation, uh, baseless regulation for everything. But we naturally regulate because there have been wrongs that have been committed in the past. I mean, you look at Henry Frick, who ran Andrew uh, Carnegie or Carnegie's um, steel uh, mills. I mean, he fired on his own employees, killed his own employees because they were striking. I mean, was so this? that's why we have unions. I believe that was uh, the late, mid to late 1800s, somewhere around there. I don't know the specific dates. Huh. But where was it at? Of course we have unions now. It's because, of, you know, the person at the top thinks that the little guy isn't doing anything. The person at the top is working very hard, but it's a it's a give and take. Carnegie needed the workers and the workers needed Carnegie. So the way you give the workers power is you allow them to collectively, you know, basically bargain as a unit against the boss. Yeah. That wasn't, you know, the government stepping in and saying, oh, hey, we need to do this or do that. It naturally did it itself. The government always lags 20 years behind any movement. So these workers had these problems. And then 20 years later, we start finding changes in the laws. We have changes. You know, we have unions forming and everything. The government always lags in that regard. But I agree. It, I but remember it responds to <clears throat> injustice with capitalism. Capitalism isn't bad. It's just acknowledging that we're human beings yeah human beings do good things and they do terrible things and sometimes 
you need to de-incentivize individuals to not act badly. So if there is a ramification that is a negative one for any particular person, they may not engage in that activity because it won't be worth their while if they end up in a cage. See what I mean? Yes. Which is and I don't know how we got then into this government tangent, in- involvement. Um, yes. But it's, uh, and the government involvement is never perfect, but it, well, you know. like you said, it's slow. One point I want to go back to really quick, just because I always enjoy the uh, the idea or the sentiment of it is um, um, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote uh, Walden Pond in Civil Disobedience back in the 1850s uh, during the Mexican American war, he was thrown in jail for not paying his taxes for the Mexican American war. Cause he didn't believe it. And I believe he starts civil disobedience off with <laughs> the government, uh, at times is anything but expedient or something like that. Just to say like the, and like the whole thing is like why you should rebel against government. But his initial complaint and I talks and, and gets people on board is just saying like, it is slow to react, just like you're saying. So, oh, the government waits until it's popular. Yeah, they wait oh, yeah, until it's yeah. popular. They're like, well, if if I, you know, they, they never stick their neck out there. They just wait for the movements and for people to change over time. Yeah. It's and a ship that just like, steers itself into the t- into the yeah. uh, undertow of the current. Yeah. Right? Um, it'll be going the, against it, and when the current's strong enough, it finally just turns into it. But it never really decides to at least our government or maybe a capitalist government just change the whole ship, you know? Yeah. So exactly. Um, <clears throat> okay. Well, there is a, uh, one more idea that I wanted to go into here, um, sort of related to what we were talking about. Um, and I, I tapped on it a little bit last week um, where we talked about, well, what would people do um, if we were working less? Um, or what would people do if they were receiving higher wages for working less or uh, a basic income or, or something like that? Um, and I, I get the complaint a lot that like people would just be lazy um, if they didn't. I hear have that all to, the time too. Yeah. If they yeah. didn't have to do these things. And I mentioned it, um, but I didn't really elaborate on it. And I do want to elaborate on it because it's an idea that I've, I've had and thought about. Um, and I think it's an important idea is that um, kids are the primary example of freeloaders. Okay. Um, and everybody at one point in time was a child. So, what someone's saying is if you give something away from free or you have to work less or this or that, you are not going to do anything productive and you will then not be a productive member of society after that. But yeah, the, the issue with that is at one point we were all kids. At one point we were all freeloading, not having to work or only having to work a little bit by going to school. And at some point we all became adults and responsible enough to pay for our bills and our groceries and okay, 99% of us or 98% of us. But uh-huh. I think that is just a huge fallacy to think that if people are getting things for free, they're going to be lazy. Kids get things for free their whole lives. They start out at two or three years old getting everything for free and they don't have to do anything. Parents do everything for them. They clean up for them. They get them food. They buy them things. There's not a lot of work involved in any of that stuff. Um, And so I I just want to point out uh, that that in itself is a fallacy to think that if somebody gets something for free or if we have to work less or if we raise somebody's wages, uh, that 
they are then not going to want to do anything or they'll just sit around and be lazy and um, all that kind of stuff. I think there's too much that goes into to making a decision like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know if it would end up I really don't think that we'd end up lazy, but I think that there would be a subsect of the population that would have problems just like, you know, any other subsect of the, the population. We just can't be thinking absolutes on it. But I think that, um, I don't know, going back to that baboon study and everything, it was basically um, a bunch, a baboon troop that parked themselves outside of a um, a uh, hotel. And the hotel would basically, this was in another country, obviously, where they have baboons. I can't think of the particular country off of the... Uh, top of my head for some reason I think in Nigeria but I don't I don't know uh, anyways that's not the point the uh, they would dispose of the trash and and unlock bins and everything basically just a big trash heap with all the food products and everything and the baboons instead of going out and fending for themselves they just parked themselves on the trash heap completely destroyed their whole entire social network their hierarchies and all that kind of stuff um, they developed disease and um, you know uh, human diseases from eating our foods and everything uh-huh. Um, and that can be used as a, as an example, but I don't know that we would necessarily become that because, um, I, I don't know if we could, we could draw like a direct parallel to that. I really don't know how it would turn well, out. Well, I think the difference is, it's like you, you might say, okay, we'll look at a dog. A dog has everything taken care of from them. And, and so they just lay around all day. We have so many other things to do though. Okay. Yeah. If if uh-huh. that were the case, nobody would have ever written poetry. Nobody would yeah. have ever painted a picture because we would have said, "Why we don't need to do that? We're already done. Yeah. What would be the point in painting that picture? We've got this or that or blah blah blah." We like to take our spare time and fill it with hobbies and create things. There is something about that that is intrinsically rewarding to us, uh, and I think it's because we're social creatures and that we want to impress other people. I don't think we do it for ourselves. Yes, I mean, we do. Yes, it in a very I was just going to say that, but yeah. we do it. I do it so you like me, which is for me, yes. but it's for you if that makes sense we're creating value in ourselves by by giving others value so you're you're basically saying that we wouldn't just disregard our entire social structure and just completely devolve as a species because we're getting uh, no in fact we would probably do that more i mean i don't know about you but since this whole covid thing and now we're staying at home and blah, blah blah like I've actually sort of spent more time with some of my friends. Um, yeah. Maybe just spending more time with my friends in general, doing things like this uh, podcast. We yeah. started that with the stay at home order. Um, I've been playing lots of online games with uh, my friends probably twice a week, if not three times a week. And these are things that I normally wouldn't do. I feel like, if anything, with this little bit of extra downtime, yeah, I've worked on projects around the house and this and that, but I, not only did I not sit around, I actually became a little bit more social. Um, and yeah. so 
you know, the more we work in, when I went to college and I was working two jobs and, uh, I would work about 40 hours a week, sometimes a little bit more. And I was taking like 20 units, sometimes 22, 24 going double time, having to petition for it. I didn't have any social life whatsoever. All of that type of stuff fell apart. And all I was doing was work, 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 work. So, I mean, this reduction, uh, in, um, work hours might be good in the sense that, we become more social. Maybe we get along better. Could you imagine? Everybody's at each other's throat. I won't say everybody. There are some people who are at each other's throats uh, via the internet over this whole COVID situation. And um, I, I get that we're just kind of thrown into it and nobody knows what's going on. But could you imagine if over time that we just don't work as much? Would we keep doing that or would we just become better socially with each other and find better ways to invest our time. I think it would be a combination of both. I mean, you're talking about uh, when you were working and taking on all those uh, classes and credits and everything, and uh, you probably lost balance and you probably lost a portion of your happiness. And maybe the same could be said on the polar extreme where you're not, you know, you don't have to do anything throughout the day. You don't need to go to work in order to feed yourself. Right. In order to clothe yourself, to house yourself. But I think that you're right that we constantly compare each other to one another. Um, and that would incentivize individuals to not just let themselves go and just, you know, sit in their living room, drink, smoke, do whatever they want. I think it would increase socializing and maybe um, uh, substance, um, uh, the use of substances, drugs might increase, but they might increase in a social capacity, which may not be a bad thing. I mean, you look at Europe and everything. It's, you know, I have a classmate of mine. Uh, who's from England and he's like the most sociable guy on the planet. Like he loves to go to the pub and everything and just socialize with people. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And they have that sort of culture where, you know, they go to the local pub and they just kind of shoot the shit and it's, it's a beautiful thing. There's a um, British uh, brewery by my house. Um, and like the, the guy who owns it is from England. Uh, and he is like one of the most social guys ever. I remember, I think the first or second time we went in there, um, Jeff and I were, uh, talking to him, Oh, what beer is this and that? And you're the owner. And I mean, he must've given us every beer on the menu for free. Um, not full pints, but just, Oh, try this one next to this and blah, blah, blah. And this and that. And, um, and, and then, you know, he moved on and was talking to other people. And then when we were leaving, he's like, he's like, Oh, you guys into football? Uh, and I'm like, I'm not, he is. And he's like, Oh, like, yeah, Manchester, that's not. And, and then I'm like, Oh, you mean soccer? Okay. Uh, (laughs) and, uh, he's like, look, if you are, uh, into football, you should come back, uh, whenever there's a Manchester game. Um, we're not allowed to legally open here. Um, so you can come in as my friend and drink for free at four in the morning. And I'm like, what four o'clock in the morning you have people coming in here and drink, uh, drinking. And he's like, yeah. And you can't, you know, I can't charge you for drinks or anything. So you can leave, you know, tips or cash or, uh, lying around if you want or don't want to, but just come in and watch the game with me. And I'm like, and people drink before they go to the, to work. And he's like, we're not getting hammered. We're having a beer. We're getting up in the morning and, and this and that. And I'm like, this just doesn't make any sense to me. It's an entire social experience. Yes. It's a social experience. Yes, it's, that's it. This guy just, he's super social. He wants to hang out with people, come in, have a free beer. Don't get hammered. Just enjoy the social experience. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think that's the, the way it would go. And in, and in terms of robotics, I, I truly see it getting to a point where it's like flat screen TVs now. I mean, I remember, God, was it, I took a train to San Diego. It must have been, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. And you're just on the the tracks and you're looking, it went by this, uh, it went by some of the projects and everything. You could look into the windows and you see these big flat screen TVs and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's gotten to the point where technology has become cheap enough to where uh, more individuals can afford these uh, otherwise luxury items. Yeah. And I look at it in terms of AI getting to a point where individuals have the capacity to create their own factories, meaning meaning not large output, but let's say like, like a podcast that has a following of 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. They're serving a very niche, small audience. Uh, audience, but it's enough to sustain an existence and potentially a business upon that. Yeah. So let's take that down to an individual level where technology gets cheap enough. They create robotics where people can uh, create their own mini factories in their home. And based upon their unique ability in their mind, they're able to create unique products for other people utilizing technology that was only available for the likes of Amazon. So eventually that's the way I see it. And I think at that point, the people that will be in control will be those people that control the resources because those robots will still require inputs in the form of resources. Yeah. Um, So that could present a problem, but... You really struck a chord um, when you brought up driving by projects and seeing... I don't play music. God damn it. Yeah. You really struck a chord when you talked about <laughs> driving or going by the projects in the train and uh, seeing big screen TVs on the wall. So I started thinking, <clears throat> you mentioned earlier that there will, in the future, though we'll have this, there will still be a, a upper class, a middle class, and a poor class. Just it will shift in terms of how that's defined. And I actually think I completely agree with you now with that, because look, the homeless people today are not as bad off as some of the homeless people were, say, maybe a hundred years ago. Many of them are living in tents. Many of them have sleeping bags and pillows, cell phones, um, cell phones. Most of them have cell phones and everything. doesn't yeah. mean that their, their life is great. Like no, I'm not I saying that, that no all. one is listening to this. Yeah, exactly. It is still a very rough existence and they aren't being treated in terms of the various mental conditions that some of these individuals may have. So I hate that I have to preface that, but <laughs> we live in a society where someone's just going to listen to that and be like, oh, well, they think that being homeless is a great existence. Now we're not saying that at all. So, um, and then if you look at maybe the lower class, the, the buildings in which they dwell are probably a lot nicer than a hundred years ago. Um, yes. they, they have nicer things than they do, probably newer clothes, uh, or nicer clothes, warmer clothes, cell phones, big screen TVs. I think the thing that still qualifies somebody like that as poor is probably, uh, the type of car that they drive maybe, um, and the condition of their house and the, um, the quality of, uh, the interaction with their neighbors. Um, not saying that all of them are necessarily bad, but you tend to get a lot of crime around those areas because people are poor and will do stuff, uh, to get money because they don't have other, uh, means of accessing it as easy as you and I might. Um, yeah. 
And that drives the price down of real estate, uh, which, let's face it, is probably the most expensive bill that we all have is our real estate bill. And so Mm -hmm. um, real estate being the most expensive thing that we pay for is probably the biggest differentiating factor right now between classes. But if you were to look at that division now and 100 years ago, it's still probably a a big leap. Now, I think the ultimate goal would be we want to close that gap as much as possible. You're saying, you know, it's probably always all always going to exist. And I tend to agree with you just because I think human beings are relative. Uh, um, let me rephrase that. I think human beings think relativistically. I don't think they think in absolutes. I don't think um, what somebody called tall a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago is what we call today. That's just not it. We judge what we have by others around us and what we see, not what happened 10,000 years ago. We don't even know what it looked like. So we forget that stuff and it's just, it's all relative. Um, so, so there will be a gap no matter what, because we're human beings and we see differences. That's what we do. Um, we look at things and we listen to two bands that are similar and we say, ah, that band sucks because this, I like this one better. And we just find differences and we make them. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, one last thing, I don't know if it's uh, worth discussing or not. Um, it sort of piggybacks on this, or at least it did at one point in time in my head. Uh, this is something I did bring up last time, and I, I kept trying to explain this, and I don't know if I explained it very clearly. Um, but I wanted to say that uh, when we think of the future, we tend to think of it in terms of um, being completely different than we are right now. And that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. The future will be different. We think, what will the world look like a hundred years from now? And you think, oh God, I don't know, virtual reality and what will the robots be like? And definitely self-driving cars because we have them now. I mean, it's been a hundred years, a little more, um, since we invented a car and, and now they're driving themselves in another hundred years, you know, it'll be this or that, blah, blah, blah. We know it'll be different, but I think what tends to happen is when people think of the future, um, they tend to take people from the present or their present mindset, push it into the future, uh, environment and go, things will really change because we think like this and we're going to have to adapt because of this new environment around us because virtual reality is so prominent or because cars drive themselves or because we have robot maids, this and that. But what I tried to clarify last time, and I I really want to just push home as a point when we consider these things is that change occurs so slowly that the people who are in the midst of it don't see it happening or understand what's going on. And so that's what makes it very hard about predicting the future is that we, you could predict the type of thing that we might have, but your prediction of how a human being is going to react to that isn't accurate at all because they will be slowly desensitized to whatever that thing is. Um, I think what we said is it's not just, you're not just going to wake up tomorrow and the Terminator robots going to exist or flying cars are going to exist. We will very, very slowly get to that point and it won't really look like things have changed much at all, um, for the individual experiencing that change. In other words, like look at what video games were like when we were five or six years old. I mean, we were playing Nintendo and Atari, uh, eight bit graphics that, didn't even really look like real life. 
right? Mario yeah. is eight bit. He's just a little blob on the screen and there's turtles and it's two dimensional and it doesn't make any sense. You go and do virtual reality now. Sarah and I have done two uh, virtual reality games um, called uh, The Void. That is the maker of the game. It wasn't the games. Um, and we did this at Disneyland or downtown Disney um, in Anaheim. And one of them was a Star Wars one and one of them was Avengers one. And you put on an Oculus Rift, you get a gun, you get a vest, you've got a helmet on. That helmet uh, has uh, headphones over it. And all of a sudden, Paul, I look at you and you are now a stormtrooper. And you look at me and I'm a stormtrooper and I can see your guns and your fingers and everything moves accordingly and you hop in there and it is bizarre. You have been transformed into another world. And you go, well, man, if I was five or let's say I was 30 years old in 1990 and I thought about that, someone's like, in the future, you're going to have virtual reality. I'd go, wow, that's going to be crazy. People are going to not want to go to war anymore or because they could just spend all this time in there and things will be better or thing, things are going to be like this. Like people probably won't get married anymore or do this because you could just meet your, your wife in virtual reality and live out the perfect life. And meanwhile, here we are. And like, not that many people have done it. We've slowly got there and you're like, yeah, I kind of know what it's like because I had an Xbox 360. And before that there was a Nintendo 64. And it's like, because the change of getting there is ever so slowly, it's like that, that big change that you thought was going to happen doesn't ever really occur because you're just slowly introduced to this idea to where it's like, where did the change occur? Looking back, it's like nothing big ever took place. It was just these small increments that we slowly got used to, not anything big enough to really make a splash and change the world. Yeah, we don't we don't necessarily see how other technologies will develop adjacently to the current technology, like the gaming system that you're talking about, which may augment uh, the development later on, which may change the entire process completely. And I'll give you a quick example. Uh, in my mind, and I think in the mind of a lot of others, the uh, dri- the premise of having driverless cars initially was a ridiculous premise. And the reason why is I'll give you an example with 60 Minutes. Uh, this was God, probably it has been like 15 years ago, but they ran a special on driverless cars and the hmm. way that the cars drove themselves was they put these strips, these metal strips in the road uh-huh. and they had the, the host in the passenger seat. They had the uh, the scientist in the driver's seat. The uh, engineer had their hands off the wheel the car was following these little metal strips in the road. And the premise was, is if we could put these strips all over the United States, we could have driverless cars. Maybe we'll have special highways with cars in these strips and they could drive themselves. It'll be amazing. But what they didn't, they didn't account for was the fact that we would develop GPS and that would become obsolete. That would not be a necessity anymore. And I think it was president Clinton that moved it from, a military technology into a civilian technology. And then, you know, those various technology companies got to exploit and use that technology. And then all of a sudden we developed 
you know, GPS maps as to where you can tell where your car's at. They developed that technology into a driverless car interface that right. just runs off the GPS. And we no longer need those strips. And I agree with you. There's a lot that we cannot foresee, but we seem to be a very insecure species. So we always imagine the worst. Like there's going to be, like you're saying, there's going to be this singularity moment where everything just goes to hell. But if we look at the past, that's never been the case. We've all, you know, we made it through the industrial revolution and we thought that uh, the worker was going to become obsolete. That's not what happened. We just had to retool our system. And then science came along with the advent of, um, of pictures, you know, in order to develop a picture it required science. And the thought was like, we're not going to be able to retool our society to meet the demands of science. And that did not happen. We retooled society and it maintained. So I think it's, it, it's good to be cautious, but it's not, it, it's not helpful to necessarily um, envision a doomsday scenario when we can look back on history and realize that we've, we've survived these situations. Right. I, I mean, I agree with you. Um, I don't know if you were thinking that I was I was saying it was going to be doomsday or not. I think more no, to I my wasn't. point, what I, what I was trying to say is it is going to be the same and, and possibly not many things are going to change. In other words, it's in human nature. Uh, it's in our nature for us to continue to act how we always act, right? I remember yeah. um, seeing a meme and it's like, kids these days always on their phone. And then it showed like back in my day, 1920. And it's like all these old, all these people. People, they weren't old at the time, they were young, reading newspapers in front of their face on the bus while they're all sitting around each other, not talking to each other. Like everybody's yeah. just reading the newspaper. And yeah. what I'm trying to say is people don't change much in their nature. Um, you know, the environment changes, but our, our uh, biological makeup, you know, isn't that different. If you were to take a child born 20,000 years ago and transport them to today and we raise them in this society, I think they would get along just fine. I don't think you would notice the difference between uh, that person and me whatsoever. No. Um, Not at all. And so what I'm saying is that human nature is essentially the same. And if you were to take me and and, and raise me 10,000 years from now, that I wouldn't know any different. But I think human nature will be the same, that that people will exploit each other and, um, you know, try and take advantage of one another and, oh, yeah. um, and things like that, which is just another reason why I remain skeptical of the reduction of work hours. Now, look, um, I want to say just like I did last week is I, I hope that I'm wrong and I hope that we can do these things. Um, and I used to be a huge proponent of the reduction of it. I mean, I still think I am that we should, I just don't know if it's going to happen. Yeah. And I tend to agree with, uh, with what you're saying. Well, I know you had some things that you wanted to say about last episode. Well, uh, I think, I don't know if it was last episode or the, the episode before, but you asked for clarification and I thought it was clarification on the point that I was making, but maybe it was the, the, the coin of phrase that I was using. I said at one point that there was no there there. Have yeah, I remember heard? that. You, you've used that, I think, four times in the last three podcasts. Or... I just asked my brother-in-law, he's never heard that before. Um, I had a really good friend of mine point out that she's never heard that before. And she's wondering like, well, what are you talking about? And I had no idea that a lot of people hadn't heard that, but that phrase goes back to 1937 in uh, Northern California. This woman coined the term for the first time. Um, I believe it was in a news article, but it's been used ever since, and it's, it's used heavily now in, in politics. So if you follow, I mean, I've, 
I tend to follow politics and I really follow politics uh, back in the day. So I heard that a lot. So when you say there is no there there, you mean that there's just no evidence. So let's say that you're prosecuting someone for murder and I'm the defense attorney. The evidence comes in and uh, it's all exculpatory, meaning that the person is not guilty. Yeah. Uh, you would say there is no there there. It's a weird I, turn no, of phrase. I know I kind of get it because like, let's yes. say I'm like, oh my God, Paul, did you see that um, that bird just fly by in the movie we were watching? And you're like, no, where? And I rewind it and then I hit play and then I pause it and I go there and I point and there's my evidence and you're saying there's no there there. Like there's no like pinpoint there. There is no evidence there. Um, so the there is in place of a, um, a uh, well, evidence. Um, the, the thing that I like sort of also confused it is when somebody is um, upset or whatever, right? You, and not that people say this, but you've heard the term, they're there. There, there, darling. Oh, there, there, with like, like a pat, pat on, on the top back. of the head. Yeah, and kind I think of I sort of confused it with that. No, 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 no. I, I, I meant it completely differently. But if you were to just run a quick Google search, you, you'll see it all over the place. And there's even articles written about it, like you know, where did this terminology come about? But I had no idea that that uh, a lot of people hadn't heard that terminology before, and I was surprised actually by it. Um, but now I know, like, you know, and that, that I think that's the point, too. As we go on with this podcast, I think we do need to do a better job of just clarifying some of this stuff because we tend to kind of speed through things. And I think we're doing a lot better in terms of this podcast. I think we did a really good job of covering AI better than we did last time, because I think last time it sounded maybe a little bit more. Uh, convoluted um, than it did uh, Look, just now. So we'll get there. I think we've been trying to push the podcast into formulas, and that's exactly. been a good thing. I think it's helped us shape it and get a better idea and tried things that we wouldn't had we not attempted to force it into a formula. Um, yes. If we never said, ah, let's do it like this, where we split the episodes in half then we probably would never have gone back and started addressing things and clarifying. And I think you and I are both to the point where it's like, maybe we don't need to split the episodes in half. Maybe we just go back, listen to them and talk again for as long as we feel like talking and see where the podcast goes and then uh, have some topics planned in case it becomes stale or we come to the end of a topic or whatever. And so um, I I think that there is some benefit in... um, in attempting to put a formula to these things. But yeah, we'll get there. We're working out the kinks. Exactly. We're it, it looks like we got about 10 minutes until we hit the one hour mark. And I know we were going to talk about atomic habits and we may be able to fit that in there, but I do have a little bit, uh, a little something that may lead into that. Um, and I was going to ask you, I had a, uh, my doctor recommended, cause I, I, like I think I've mentioned on the podcast, just my ability to sleep sometimes is just God awful. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll go, you know, sometimes just four hours a night for an entire week and a half and then just crash sort of thing. Sure. It gets it gets ridiculous. So she recommended that um, I use this program, which is uh, a cognitive behavioral type of system, mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's uh, I believe the doctor's name that uh, 
runs this particular program. His name is Brandon Peters, and he's a sleep expert, I believe, out of Stanford. Okay. And she recommended the program based upon the graphs and the studies and everything on there. It, it looks like it cuts down the uh, time it takes to get to sleep by half. And then when you wake up in the middle of the night, it cuts down the wake time by half. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, first of all, what is cognitive behavioral therapy? And second of all, is would that help me in how? So I'm not an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy. I am an expert in applied behavior analysis, which are similar but different things. Um, so applied behavior analysis is taking um, human behavior and reducing it to some very simple terms uh, as, as well as you can, uh, and then making sure that um, you're able to really measure that. Uh, applied behavioral analysis uh, is really broken away from the rest of psychology in the sense that it was looking for harder evidence to come to its conclusions. Um, so uh, that's, that's different because cognitive in itself means of the mind or of the brain. And so when we talk about cognitive behavior therapy, we're talking about the way that you think or feel about things as opposed to applied behavior analysis when we're talking about the things that I can actually see you do. Okay. I see. So right off of the bat, there's there's definitely a difference. Now, there is some overlap between the two, um, and there's actually kind of a new and emerging field within behavior analysis uh, that I'm not going to be able to come up uh, with right now. I'll probably come up with it in five or ten minutes as we're talking and be like, oh, there's the term. Um, but what it's doing is it's looking at the behavior of language and looking at the... Um, way that language works as a behavior within our mind. So it essentially what it's trying to say is, look, we could take applied behavior analysis and apply it to something like cognition because we think in terms of language and I can see the language. Okay. And I can also measure your brainwaves and stuff. Um, but assuming that the language that you speak is like the language that's going on in your mind and that you're having a dialogue with yourself that is triggering certain events, um, then I can study those things. So your, your question is, you know, what is cognitive behavior therapy and should I do it? Um, I mean, cognitive behavior therapy is an attempt to change the way that you think about something and the way that you feel about something. Um, Thinking and feeling are, are things that are very hard to measure and change. Um, how do I measure the way you think about something? How do I measure the way you feel? Well, I give you a questionnaire, and hopefully you're honest. But questionnaires are influenced by all types of uh, what we call extraneous variables or just things that shouldn't be influencing it. Now, we try and account for those things in some of the questionnaires that we give you, um, and Sometimes we're really good at that. Like we're good at telling if people are lying or not. Um, but sometimes we have a bad time just seeing if you're having a bad day and your perception is being influenced because of that bad day. Um, so I'm not going to go into cognitive behavior therapy because I'm not very good at talking about that. Um, should you do it? Absolutely. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that that type of thing doesn't work is just not what I'm good at. It's not what I'm an expert in. It's not what I studied. Um, 
have people use that and gotten great results from it? Absolutely. I mean, your doctor told you so, and I definitely think that uh, the way we think about things is extremely important, and that is what Atomic Habits talked about um, frequently. And it's actually one of my big draws to that book was that, you know, I read The Power of Habit, which went over behaviors um, in very ABA terms, well, not in ABA terms, but like in ABA mechanics and science, the power of habit took that and blended it with a little bit of what we would call cognitive behavior therapy and saying that you need to be able to think about something a certain way. You need to be able to think you're someone who doesn't smoke or doesn't drink or works out. And what would you do then? And I actually like that. I tend to agree with it. I just think it's hard to measure. Yeah. And the reason why I wanted to give this a try, I don't think I would have been, um, up for it in my early 20s but as I get older I realize that um, I don't want to rely on taking anything at night in order to fall asleep like I was taking melatonin and then I read a study on that and they said on average it uh, increases um, the amount of REM sleep by eight minutes and I'm like eight minutes I mean there's multiple REM cycles and everything throughout the night that you go through but I'm like that doesn't seem beneficial. And then what am I doing in the background by taking melatonin? Am I downregulating my own production of melatonin? Am I short? Am I looking at this short sighted? Like, and that's why even with coffee and everything, I'm actually weaning myself off of coffee completely. I don't have coffee past 10 AM, but, uh, I still have a cup, uh, every single morning. But then even when you look at caffeine, um, you know, the reason why you feel tired is because you're burning energy throughout the day. Your body burns ATP and it creates this this uh, substance called adenosine. And adenosine is accumulated throughout the day. And by the end of the day, it accumulates so much that you end up feeling tired. Yeah. So then when you have a cup of coffee, all the coffee is doing is that caffeine molecule goes into the adenosine receptor, blocks that receptor... Okay, keeps the adenosine from uh, activating that receptor site to make you feel tired. The caffeine also causes a surge of adrenaline, which is why you feel, you know, your blood vessels constrict and you feel, you know, uh, elevated, essentially. But what you're also doing and what scientists are, are, are thinking and believe is that at the same exact time that that receptor is blocked, your body is now upregulating adenosine. So what happens is that when that caffeine is now out of your system, you crash because your your receptors are flooded with adenosine. So I'm reading all this stuff and I'm like, you know what? Like, this is ridiculous. I I wake up in the morning. I need a cup of coffee. You know, then then throughout the day, maybe I need uh, some B12 vitamins or something. And then at the end of the day, I need what a sleepy time tea or a melatonin or an over the counter type of uh, sleeping drug. And I'm just like, I don't want to rely on that anymore. And after reading the book, like Atomic Habits and the Power of Habit. Um, and I'm hoping uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy will be in line with that. It's a matter of kind of refocusing yourself, but, re- but refocusing by looking at you as an individual. Like the Atomic Habits doesn't give you a roadmap to a better life. Right. It doesn't, you know, it, it's not like, oh, here, here's, you know, some golden tablets. You're going to live a great life. Uh, here you go. And you'll never look back. It, it's an active approach. It is an active approach. And I actually took Atomic Habits and I uh, formulated it to myself specifically in a tangible way um, by basically creating um, a schedule and my schedule has a point system on there. And Mm -hmm. the reason why I created a point system is because I need to be able to tangibly check off boxes throughout the day that say I'm completing these assignments. And then at the end of the day, I I want to score uh, 85% and above. 
And Meaning get 85 points and above? Uh, it, well, basically, you just take the available uh, points. If I miss some points, you know, the numerator is oh, the Oh, so you're scheduling out your whole day. I'm scheduling out my whole entire Damn. day. But, but, but that's because I... Well, a lot of my classmates do this, and I know a lot of uh, people in general do this. They schedule out their entire days based upon um, Google Calendar or, you know, the various uh, technological options that are out there. Even just, you know... Um, uh, a tangible calendar, you yeah. know, a paper calendar. Um, but my problem is, is that I am an ideator. So I get lost in my mind and sometimes I get lost in the motions of life, the planning of life rather than putting pen to paper and doing life. Yeah. So what I find is in order to keep my mind focused, like last night, I'm like, I, I need, uh, or Two nights ago, I, I wrote out, I'm like, I need to write a, a memo for a legal uh, case that I'm working on. But I was very specific in how I was going to start approaching that. And basically, as I went through, I checked boxes. I had a task at hand, and it allowed me to flow through the process quickly and seamlessly. Yeah. And it's about doing these tasks <laughs> day in and day out until the task is completed. And I am also a huge procrastinator. And I've been doing this for about insanely. Even, even I mean, it got as bad that when I was in law school, I wrote up the study guide. Uh, the, uh, one of my, and it's not bragging because this is just a, a horrible trait, um, uh, personal, horrible personal trait. But I remember uh, writing up a study guide the day that I had the multiple choice section for my exam. And then I have, you know, the exam is basically three days. So I have a, a multiple choice section. And then the following day, I have an essay section. And then the third day is followed by another essay section. Well, this the first day I wrote up my study guide, I took the multiple choice exam. And then the next day I spent the entire day before the exam studying for the test and I still end up passing the exam, but I feel like such a failure because, you know, basically I am never, ever living up to my potential by dragging things out. It's like I need stress in order to become motivated. I know this and yet I don't change it. It's a habit loop. It's a cue, a routine, and a reward, but the reward is detrimental. Sure, I passed the class, but maybe I could have gotten a better grade. Maybe me, I would have learned the material better. Let me start by saying I think you're being a little hard on yourself because I would uh, argue that most people do the exact same thing you do, um, or at least in school and college. Um, people do successful become, people do it, though? Do the I, successful people that you see, do they do that? I don't know if they do or do not, but the issue becomes is that how long have successful people not been doing it for if they're not doing it? So let's say you say you look at a few successful people and you go, no, these people aren't procrastinating. Have How long have they been not procrastinating for? And I would guarantee you that most of these people have not been procrastinating probably almost their whole life. In other yeah. words, that these are our fundamental character features that are ingrained deep within us. I'm not saying they're not changeable at all. I'm saying it's hard to change this shit. I don't. I'm I, not. And the thing is, I'm not changing it. Well, like I said, I don't believe in free will. Like I, I believe in determinism. But, uh, but determinism, no you can still change things. Now you have new information yes. and it might be determined that yes. you change this behavior. Can so, I give you a quick example? Yeah. This is the way I would look at it. I think I've given you this example before. Uh, it, it's like it, it's like 
taking a child bowling, let's mm-hmm. say, it's really hard for them to put the ball down the center lane, right? Right. Like you're, they're not gonna, they're not gonna be able to engage in free will to get the ball down the lane. They don't have the coordination to do it yet, so it's a frustrating process, and they're gonna want to leave. So you inflate the gutters, you put mm-hmm. up bumpers, right? Yep. And so the ball hits the bumper and then it hits the other bumper and it keeps going down the lane. Eventually it hits some pins. May not knock them all down, but it hit the pins. That is what I'm doing with my task sheets. I'm putting up bumper but barriers to yes, keep me in line. That's good. And But doesn't the child eventually get better at bowling the more they practice it? Exactly. So that's what I'm hoping. I hope that these become ingrained habits. And over the past two weeks... I find that things aren't as stressful because I'm checking things off. I'm methodically going uh, yeah. through stuff and I, I have it set up to where I have projects. Projects last longer than an hour. Tasks last less than an hour. And then I have routine daily habits, you know, waking up at, at, at five o'clock in the morning. I like to be up usually an hour before the sun mm-hmm. comes up. I don't know why, but that's just what I like to do. Simple things. When I wake up, I do the two minute rule, which is also something that's in atomic habits, where if you're, if you're having trouble committing to something, do the thing for two minutes. Yeah. That's actually how I got back into reading um, this whole COVID-19. I mean, I've been reading every single night and it's gotten sort of bad to the point where I'm reading like, I don't know, last night I read for an hour and it was one o'clock in the morning. I'm like, shit, I should have gone to bed. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to, I'm like, I'm just going to go to bed tonight. And I'm like, no, read, just read a page, dude. And I read a page and I'm like, okay, you can read your normal amount of pages. Um, like, I'm like, how about just do half? Cause my thing is like, read 10 pages. doesn't take that long. Um, so I'm like, well, okay, you read a page, like just go for five. And I get to five. I'm like, eh, you're almost to 10. I get to 10 and I'm like, but the book just got really good. And then <laughs> and all yeah. of a sudden I'm 20 pages in and it's an hour later. I'm like, shit, it's one in the morning. I need and to before sleep. Before it was a chore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, look, the whole point of the two minute rule is, is that when you start out with things that are small and achievable, you could be successful. Um, Jordan Peterson actually talks about this in his book, um, 12 rules for, I don't know what the heck it's called. Do you remember that book? Did you read it or no? Uh, I didn't read it. It's 12 rules for a better life. I think. I don't know. Something, something like that. But, um, in the book, I, I recall him, uh, saying that, <clears throat> And I think it was in the book. Now I'm like, maybe it was on a podcast he was on. Um, but he was saying that part of the reason that we're really bad at changing our behavior, excuse me, our behavior is that we try to set up goals for ourselves that either equate to our old self or our, equate to our idea of what the ideal self should be. In other words, if I go, God, I don't really run anymore. I need to start running. I go, okay, tomorrow you're going to run three miles. Uh, and then I go and I, I run three miles and I actually do it. Okay. But it's really yeah. hard to run three miles and it's punishing. I get done with it and I go, that took too much time. My shins hurt. I'm late for this now. Or I didn't get to eat breakfast and all these things come up. And so, so now I'm less likely to run because I'm not getting rewarded. Um, whereas if I could just lower my expectations of myself and not say, okay, Bob, you don't have to do three miles, do half a mile. Like, why don't I do that? And because I go half a mile, what are you, a bitch? You're going to run half a mile? You some fat kid who can't get down there? I'm 35. I played sports most of my life. 
whether it be, you know, soccer in high school or when I was a kid and baseball or skateboarding and snowboarding and surfing. So I'm in shape and you're going to run half a mile. And so I talk myself out of it. I say, that's not good enough. And then I don't run at all. And by the end of the week, I could have run three and a half miles. Instead, by the end of the week, I, week, I run zero because exactly. I keep expectations too high for, exactly. for what I should achieve. And this has actually been a battle for the last two years. I remind myself of this constantly and go, okay, like now, now it used to be three miles and I got great at it. Uh, I ran three miles like three times a week for about a year, maybe two or three years ago. Um, and then I broke the habit because I went to my sister's house for 10 days, 11 days. And then I got back and I was behind at work. So I had to stay late and catch up. And my, my habits, my routines were off. Um, and so I kind of fell out of it. And since I moved into the new house, I'm, I'm trying to get back into it. But what I did was I lowered my expectations and I started doing just a mile. Okay. And I end up usually doing a little bit more. I think my route ends up being a mile and a quarter or something like that. Um, and so I'm running for 10 minutes. It's not that much. And I'll walk for three or five minutes, the last of it, just to kind of cool down and, um, bring my heart rate back to a normal temperature. And it, it has been better. I will say that. Um, but I still don't think it's low enough because sometimes I wake up and I'm like, ah, I don't have 10 minutes. <laughs> so I, I, I want to say that changing your behavior is very challenging, but I think some of the biggest issues that we have with trying to uh, tackle some of these things, and I probably got away from whatever triggered this idea, so maybe you can t- bring it back for me, is that um, our expectations of ourselves are too high. I go, well, you got to run that three miles because that's what you did 10 years ago, and that's what you used to be able to do. And it's like, yeah, I'm not that same person anymore. I got to give myself some, some leeway for that. And I got to lower my bar a little bit and just say, a mile's fine, dude. Um, because you're never going to do three miles. And here's the the crazy thing is we were talking about slow change earlier and how, you know, uh, you try to look at the future and you can't imagine it, um, or you can imagine it and, but you think it's going to take this big change to get there. Behavior change is the same way. So what if I go, Oh, well, I'm going to run five or 10 miles a day. I go, well, I could never do that. I would never run yeah. 10 miles a day or I would never run a hundred miles a month or something like that. There's just no way it would require too big of a change in my life. Something catastrophic would have to ha- would have to happen. But in actuality, no, not at all. If I just start running half a mile a day, which isn't much at all, that is 15 miles a month. And if I just up that to three quarters of a mile, well then we're doing about 23 miles a month. And if I just then make that a mile, that's 30 miles a month. And if I just make that a mile and a half, well, there's 45 miles a month. And all of a sudden I'm running, I don't know, two miles a day. I, I don't know if I'm mixing the words up now that I'm thinking back. What I, <laughs> what I meant to say, if I fucked that up, was that if I run half a mile a day and then up that to a quarter mile a day and then up that slowly to a mile a day, a mile and a quarter a day per month, it's going to start going up. And before you know it, if I'm, only run, if I'm just running three miles a day, which I believe I should be able to do anyways, I'm running a hundred miles a month. And I become that person where I thought it would take this catastrophic change. And it actually doesn't. It is just these small incremental changes that get us there. One of the things I really like about atomic habits and that whole cognitive behavior um, uh, idea is that you go, okay, I want to become a runner, uh, uh, somebody who runs, or I want to become a runner. What would somebody who runs do right now? And, and you think about that. What does that person do every day? 
Well, they run every day. Do I want to become that? Yes. So be that. Be that right now. Be the person who runs every day. But that doesn't mean that you go, well, that person runs 10 miles a day. But you don't have to do that. You just have to build the habit. You can. Here's a big thing about habits. I told you if you got me onto behavior, I'm just going to rant. <laughs> and, and you could let me talk for uh, three hours and you'll never get a word in. Um, Podcast but, is yours, Bob. <laughs> because I will just do rant. your thing. Um, do your thing. But um, so what I like about that is, is that it's like, okay, um, you know, what is somebody who run, uh, do well, they run every day. Um, it doesn't have to be 10 miles, but that's how you build a habit. A habit is not something you do once a month. A habit is something that you do every day. And that's the thing that we don't see. You want to learn to play an instrument as an adult and you go, well, I'm going to buy a guitar and take lessons once a week. Good for you. Lessons once a week. Great. You're never going to learn anything. Okay. You want to learn a foreign language and you go, oh, I'm going to learn Spanish or I'm going to learn German or whatever it is that you want to learn. And I'm going to take lessons once a week. And once a week, I'm going to go to the German cultural center in downtown and this and that, blah, blah, blah. Good. Have fun. It's going to take you forever. You want to learn German? You want to learn Spanish? You want to learn to play an instrument? Practice 10 minutes a day. It's not about the quantity uh, of time that you're doing it. It's just the quantity of your frequency of practicing. Practice the same things over and over and over, just in small duration. Run a quarter of a mile every single day, and then it becomes a habit. That's the two-minute rule. That's what you were talking about is just do it for two minutes. Just build the pattern so that it gets built into your day. Think about all the things. Go ahead. Well, I think that actually goes back to sleep. You're saying that, okay, if you put in, let's say, you want to learn how to play guitar and you take an hour lesson once a week instead of doing the 10 minutes per day, like you're saying, right? Yeah. Um, what you're not realizing is you're not taking into to account the benefit of sleep in terms of habit formation. Um, and there was a, uh, a study that was being done on mice out of MIT. Um, I don't remember how many years ago it was though, but the I lab think was I know shut where you're down. going they were, with this. It was, yeah. it was a long time ago, like 40 or 50 years, right? Where they were was it? depriving it may, mice of sleep and having think, them run a maze. I don't think it was, I don't know if they were, they weren't de- actually depriving them of sleep. And I think this was actually more recent than that. I don't think okay. it was 40 years ago. But what they were doing is they were implanting electrodes on these uh, on the uh, mouse's brains and mice's brains, and they were to go through this maze, uh-huh. and they wanted to see what brain functions were going on at certain times as they navigated the maze and as they got better at it. So they finished at the end of the day. They put the the mice back in their uh, cages and everything. The scientists are going over their data. The computers are still on though, and the electrons or le- electrons the electrodes are still hooked up to the mice. Well, the scientist all of a sudden notices a bunch of brain activity going off on one of his monitors. And he's like, oh, crap, one of the mice got, got loose. I need to run in there. So he runs into the, the room where the maze is and where the mice are being uh, housed in their cages. Turns out all the mice are in their cages. They're just asleep. Aha. What they figured out was that the mouse was going through the process of going through the maze at night. And what they've hypothesized is that you're basically reinforcing what goes on in your day to where when you wake up again tomorrow, 
that is reinforced in in the form of a newly just formed because, habit. Just because I'm a behavior analyst, let's call that rehearsed, not reinforced. Because reinforcement is something that uh, you get External. after a behavior. Uh, it's a okay. consequence um, that makes you want to do that behavior again in the future. Um, it's one of the hardest things that I have uh, a hard time convincing people of. Um, not getting them to understand it. They understand it. They just don't believe it, right? Right? Um, when I'm working with parents. So I work with parents and they'll want to work on like rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal. And I go, great. But rehearsal doesn't matter at all unless there is a reason to retain the information. Okay. Yeah. I could force you to learn Russian, Paul, and make you sit in my class day after day. But if you hate Russian and you're not interested at all, no matter how many times I make you say a sentence over and over and over, you're not going to pick up on it. And you go, well, You'll pick up on it a little bit just because you're doing it. And it's like, then maybe you're getting some reinforcement in getting me off of your back. What yeah. I'm trying to say is you, if you have no reason to learn something whatsoever, you are not eventually just going to pick up on it. Think of it like this. When you were four years old and you saw a math equation written on a board or you saw let's say when you were three years old and you saw street signs and addresses and names on buildings, did you walk by and read them? Did you wonder what those things were? Or no. did you not, there you go, did you not even know they existed? Did you not pay attention to them at all? Had no reason to. You had no reason to. And so if, if the theory is, if I forced you to look at them time and time and time and time and time again every single day, you're not going to figure out what it is. And you go, well, that's different in Russian. I'm telling you what it is. Okay. But what I'm saying is there has to be motivation there. Look, if you started learning how to read those signs, or if somehow you, you pointed at one of them and I went, yeah, good job. That's something you should pay attention to, Paul. And I gave you some candy because you pointed it out. You might point it out again and again and again. And then the more I point it out, the more you might see other people maybe reading it. Someone goes, oh, are we going to Vaughn's? And then you might see the sign and go, Vaughn's one day. And I go, oh my God, you've read it. Instead of ice cream, I'm going to buy you a Whopper. We're going to go to Burger yeah. King. And you're a three, four, five-year-old kid. And you go, holy shit, I should pay attention to these signs more often. What I'm trying to say is that rehearsal doesn't do much for us. Rewards do much for us. So you were saying like when we sleep, our brain rewards us or reinforces us. <clears throat> and people people misuse that uh, um, pretty frequently. Um, and really what was the term again that you used? Rehearsal. Rehearsal? Yeah. So your brain is just rehearsing the maze, doing it again. Uh, I see. Reinforcement I see. is something that makes you want to do something again. In other words, in the reinforcement in this case was the cheese at the end of the maze. Bingo. So there they're rehearsing their their reward that they may get yep. the next day should they end up in that same yep. place. And people will call okay. something a reinforcer that's not a reinforcer. They'll be like, "Well, I don't get why little Johnny won't do his homework. I gave him." a reinforcer after he did it, I let him play video games for two minutes. Two minutes? Yeah. 
Really? If you gave the mouse a piece of cheese that was the size of their thumbnail, would they learn to do it again? It's not worth the memory. The, the mouse doesn't go, holy shit, a giant piece of cheese. How did I get this? And it doesn't trigger the brain to start paying attention and coding all the information. So our brains yeah. code information um, based off of excitation. And that could be pain or that could be pleasure or all the different things in between. Okay, anxiety and sex and hunger and thirst and all of that stuff. Our brain codes that. You don't think back to third grade, Paul. If I go, imagine third grade. Go back, think of your teacher, your classroom. Walk yourself through the first day, the last day, and every day in between. Paul, now I want you to envision one of the times specifically in which you got up and you sharpened your pencil and you went and sat back down. And if you're thinking of something right now, you're just making it up. You're like, okay, well, I could see myself doing that. You don't remember any specific instances in third grade of you doing that because there's no reason to remember that at all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Unless you accidentally stuck your finger in it and it tore your finger off and you had to go to the hospital and you would not forget that at all. Yeah. Or if by I, the pencil sharpener, the girl that you like came up to you and kissed you because those are the things that are worth remembering. And you remember. so- and so when people talk about reinforcers and, well, I gave him a dollar and he's still not doing it, or we let the prisoner out of jail and he just keeps going back, it's because there's no reinforcement. There's no reason for them to want to do the good thing again. It's more rewarding to do whatever the bad thing is. Yeah. So anyway, I can definitely see that. Well, and to, to tie it back. Well, go ahead. I was going to say just a spiel on reinforcement. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I enjoy that. I didn't know that there was a difference in, in terminology, so I'm glad that you, you told me well, that. And, but and it, that is reinforcement is the most important point. I wouldn't have, if you said like a term in ABA that's like smaller, it doesn't matter. I wouldn't have corrected it. But reinforcement is the only reason we engage in behavior. It is the most important thing that we do. Look, you're talking about yeah. changing your habits. And for you, like part of the reinforcement is just becoming a better person. But if you gave your um, your girlfriend or your friend or your mom or your dad or some someone one a thousand dollars and said only give me twenty dollars whenever i do this or that okay only give it back to me and you hang on to this money and i don't ever get it back in fact if for every day that i don't do it you don't give me twenty dollars i want you to spend the twenty dollars now you're losing money you can gain it though yeah. if you do it that's a reinforcer that's going to motivate you to change your behavior much better right take that point system you said 80 85 percent Okay. Yeah. If you have two grand in your bank account tomorrow, take that out, give it to Jason, give it to Kelly and be like, Hey, every day that I don't get 85%, uh, I want you to take $50 of this and spend it on yourself or the kids get whatever you want. But if I get 85%, give me that 50 bucks back. Yeah. You'll, you'll do it. Absolutely. You will absolutely do it. The reason people don't do this often, though, like in therapy and stuff, is because it's unethical. <laughs> but if you want to set that up for yourself uh, without a therapist doing that, you'll do it because you don't want to lose that money and you want to get it back. Now, even better, Paul, if you didn't have to give me $2,000, if you just did it and you said, hey, Bob, I met my 85% today and I went, hey, you know what? Good job, Paul. Uh, here's 20 bucks of my money. You don't even have the fear of missing out on your own money. That's even better. Yeah, because I don't want you to be motivated by fear. So anyways, you were going to say something. Well, I was just going to say to take it back to uh, when you were talking about um, 
motivating yourself to work out. I mean, what what always seems to happen, and it's happened with me in the past, is, is you're right. You get to this place where you just want to become this new human being. You just want to go out and you want to lift all these weights and you want to run 10 miles and do all this stuff. It's the new year. It's the new you. You're going to do this. And you get all super motivated and you go out and you, you engage in something that you otherwise don't do. And it's awful because it's goes against the grain of your being. You haven't done it in a long time. You're sore. You're sweating. You're huffing and puffing. Your body is having a hard time reaching homeostasis because it's out of its element. Yep. Over time, though, we all know that that improves. And I would take it down and break it down even further, according to Atomic Habits, when I think he gave an example of if you want to go to the gym and you can apply it to running and walking and all that kind of stuff, um, if you want to better yourself uh, in terms of your health and, and athleticism and whatever, you... Put on your shoes and just tell yourself you're just going to go to the gym and walk into the front door. Yeah. That's all that you have to do. Don't engage your mind in the thought that you're going to go through a strenuous exercise. Just say, I'm going to put on my shoes and I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to walk in. Yep. And most of the time, he said, by the time you've already spent that amount of energy of just going there you're likely to engage in the activity. And I did something very similar to that uh, unknowingly when I was trying to overcome my depression. Um, I wasn't working out as much. I wasn't as active. And I knew that that had to be an element of my life in order to get my, you know, shit turned around. Yeah. And so what I did is I realized I don't, you know, I've always been a very uh, fast runner. So I can sprint uh, as one of the, you know, the fastest runners on our football team. I even beat out some of our cross country team in high school. I hate it. I don't like huffing and puffing and I don't like working out to the point to where I'm only focused on the pain because when I work out and when I'm uh, jogging or walking or doing whatever, I like to be able to think. Yeah. In that time or listen to a podcast or I'll just play music and use the music as motivation to think about whatever I need to think about. It's just processing my day and my life. And so what I did is I just started, I just decided I'm going to go for a walk and I'm just going to walk and I have no set time, no set length. The only objective that I have is that I need to walk up one hill. That is it. One hill and the hill, I still go up the same hill. It's maybe, I don't know, 400 feet. It's a steep incline and I walk it and I walk, 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 walk all the way up to the top. It, you know, my, uh, walks were maybe half a mile to a mile initially. Now on average, they're around four miles yeah, um, or a little under and it, and it's just a walk and I get, and I get the four miles done in like, you know, an hour and a half, maybe something like that. It's yeah. really not that bad. I'm not huffing and puffing. I'm not annoyed, but over time though, health is imp- improved. Memory is improved. My, uh, depression is all but gone away. I still have little issues here and there. There's times that, you know, listeners on the podcast can probably tell when I'm not that lucid. So I still have certain issues here and there. But in, in the aggregate, though, it's improved. And it got to the point at some times where I was feeling so good that I'm like, I need to run this fucking hill. I got to run this bitch. Yeah. And I would just run up that hill. And I still do that on occasion. I'll get to that hill climb. and I'm like, you know what? I want to I wanna be huffing and puffing by the time I get to the top. Yeah. 400 feet. And I know the end is near. It's a short finish line. I get to the top of that hill. And then I'm walking the rest of the way. Yeah. That's it. That's it. 
And yeah, my uh, agility uh, and everything has just you know vastly improved just because of doing that. So it's just a matter of you know putting your shoes, setting your shoes aside, and just saying, hey, I'm going to show up to this particular destination tomorrow, and all I'm going to do is I'm just going to step outside my car. Mm-hmm. That's it. And, and, and likely that will turn into something else. Make it something, though, that you can do daily. Don't make it. Yes. Don't make it three times a week. I'm going to do this. That is not a habit. Okay. And you don't shower yourself. You shower every day. You brush your teeth every day. Okay? Yes. You eat breakfast every day. These are habits. These are things that you do daily. These are things you wake up and you don't even think about doing. Before you go to bed, do you sleep in your clothes? No, you've developed a habit of taking them off or changing into pajamas or whatever. Okay. So, so habits are things that you do daily. If you only do it once or twice or three times a week, um, it's just not going to be as effective. It's not going to stick. What's going to happen is that sometimes you're going to have a certain trigger in your environment and sometimes you will respond to that in a particular way and other times you won't. We'll get into this a little bit further. Um, well, on can the I just next leave episode. With, sure. Absolutely. I, 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 I'm sorry. I just have no, to interject here because it, it's just, it just, it fits perfectly with what we're talking about. I know we need just, to close it, it this. It pisses thing. me off. No, it, it pisses me off. I can't stand it. No, but it fits perfectly. And I think that, that, that you'll have uh, something to comment about. I know we're going a little bit over, but you know, we're kind of into the middle of this, but, um, there was an example that they gave that was counterintuitive to me in Atomic Habits, and they set up the premise of it, and it basically goes like this. There was a professor uh, of art. They taught an art class, and they set up an experiment where some of the, half of the class would just turn in oh, yeah, one this. piece yep. of art. Yeah, one piece of art, and it had to be their best product. So they got to spend the entire semester just perfecting that one piece of art, and then they turned it in for a grade. The other class, the other half of the class, they were to produce as much art as they could, day in and day out. They were graded on the amount of art art, that they turned in. On the amount, exactly. And what they found, which was counterintuitive to me, was that the half of the class that produced as much art as possible had a better end product. Yeah, they so they the had a end better, product of both groups they gave to outside um, assessors, sort of. They just they gave them to people yeah. who weren't in the class and said, "Look at these photographs." So they were photographs. Uh, it was a photography Sorry, a photograph. You're correct. <clears throat> and and um, and they said, "Which photographs do you like the best?" And these people who weren't in the class had no idea what was going on in, in the experiment. Uh, in general, I don't know the statistics and what exactly they look like, but the book explains that in general, people liked the person's uh, work who practiced more. They didn't know any of that stuff. That's just those the works were uh, that were selected were almost always done by the people who had just done it more frequently, um, yeah. and not the people who were just to sit there and think about it and figure out uh, what the best thing was. Yeah, and it was about producing as much as you can, basically turning it into uh, a daily habit. And those individuals that were producing uh, a ton of pictures each and every day, they were experimenting with different, you know, different lenses, different lighting, all this kind of stuff, and it honed their skill over time. Whereas the other group, 
didn't turn in a product that was comparable in terms of quality to the other group. Yeah. So, and that was counterintuitive to me, but after thinking about it a little bit, it starts to make more sense. It's just a matter of uh, establishing habits and doing that daily. Absolutely. So that's basically what I wanted to bring up. So well, you can go ahead and close this thing out. We are, we're going to talk about that more because I'm like, do I bring this up? <laughs> and, and if I bring it up, we're just going to do this for three or four hours. So um, th- we're going to close this out. Um, but next week, we're going to pick it right back up into this. And I would imagine we'll go over this for an, uh, the whole podcast. I don't see us getting into any new material <laughs> just because I know I could talk about this stuff. I mean, I barely scratched the surface of what I wanted to talk about. And we've talked about it for 40 minutes Uh now already. Um, so, uh, I'd imagine next episode, we'll just talk about this probably the next uh, episode after, and then we'll get back to, I think what we wanted to talk about, which was, uh, Justin Amash. So, um, that is it. Uh, join us next week as we clarify some of the issues we talked about this week and talk a little bit more about behavior analysis and habits. Uh, we will see you then. I'm gonna